When we enter shared social spaces, shop for groceries or clothes, dine at a restaurant, pass through a hotel lobby or walk down the street, we inadvertently engage with musical sounds. Music that entertains, music that sells, music that alters or enhances mood, music that politicizes. Urban landscapes in particular are flooded with the musical sounds of radios, street musicians, commercial jingles, and protests. Marie Abe has examined the Japanese musical advertisement practice, Chindonya, and its politicized position as a sonic element of anti-nuclear street protests in Japan following the post-earthquake nuclear disaster of 2011. In this episode, we talk with Marie about her article, Sounding Against Nuclear Power in Post-311 Japan, Resonances of Silence and Chindonya, which was recently published in the journal Ethnomusicology. You're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. In your article on anti-nuclear power protest music in Japan, you focus on traditional Japanese performance practice, chindonya. Just to start with, what is chindonya? So it is a flamboyant Japanese musical advertisement practice. And by that, I mean a group of ostentatiously dressed musicians, usually between three and five people, who can be hired by any business for the day. And they usually parade through the streets playing music. But they don't advertise products themselves, but they draw customers to the establishment that hire them. They usually play an assortment of instruments. Um, There's always uh, one person who plays a set of percussion instruments, traditional Japanese percussion instruments uh, that are all uh, mounted on the wooden frame. But usually the melody instruments are from Western traditions, such as clarinet or saxophone or trumpet or accordion. So what is the history of this tradition? When does it start to form in Japan? So often people like to trace this back to 1845 when there was a townsperson by the name of Amekatsu who sort of had this entrepreneurial idea to do this proxy advertisement business. He decided to advertise on behalf of a candy store using wood blocks and bells and, and his own voice. So that's sort of the moment of inception in the history of sonic proxy advertisement practice on the street. But it didn't quite look like what Chindonya is today, and he wasn't called Chindonya. So the way we know the practice today as is, um, it didn't come together until 1930s and really 1950s is when it really solidified. Your article from the recent issue of Ethnomusicology doesn't focus on so much this traditional practice of Chindonya as an advertisement platform, but its role within political protest. Can you tell us a little bit about that history, that, that uh, transition? At what point does Chindonya start to transform or, or emerge as an active part of protest in Japan? Sure. So first, uh, just a quick disclaimer. If you say Chindonya has become a mode of political protest in Japan today, most people, including myself, would probably disagree. <laughs> Chindonya today is considered somewhat obsolete and 
sort of antiquated uh, kind of practice, even though it, it is active. So I guess as part of the history, what I should mention is so, you know, after the 50s, when it became so popular with the rise of other types of advertisement media, it almost disappeared. People, you know, Chindonya practice really suffered. And it wasn't until late 80s, early 90s that they gained popularity again. So I would say that the first moment when Chindonya, what I call Chindonya inspired practices became uh, politicized was back in 1995 when a Okinawan folk singer released a, a sort of controversial album which featured some um, Chindonya sounds. So it's it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment, but it seemed that between late 80s, early 90s and to mid 90s, there were multiple people, musicians across Japan who saw the aesthetics of Chindonya and memories of Chindonya that go with it as productive framework through which to express their politics. In your article, you focus on this one particular protest or this emergence of a series of protests, if you will, following uh, the 2011 nuclear power plant uh, meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi. How was Chinunya or Chinunya inspired, as you were saying, uh, performances being incorporated into this particular protest um, in April 2011 or subsequent protests as part of the anti-nuclear protest movement? Sure. So this one, actually, it really was as if you are witnessing a, you know, regular Chindonya parade, except maybe much, much bigger. So the very first uh, anti-nuclear power movement or protest that took place on the street after the disaster was in Koenji neighborhood on April 10th, one month after the disaster. And I think heading the parade was a bunch of more than a dozen musicians. And many of them were ostentatiously dressed in really vivid, colorful kimonos with, you know, uh, makeups, but sort of traditional wigs. So there were four or five Chindonya percussion players who walked and twirled and smiled and they had umbrellas. And so really, you know, it was quite a spectacle. And they were followed by musicians who also played uh, as Chindonya, but they weren't dressed as lavishly, but they all wore colorful costumes and some played horns. Uh, a couple people uh, played electric guitars with um, their small portable amps strapped to their shoulders. up a little bit to the development of Chindonya, can you describe a little about the musical material they are working with in traditional settings and the purpose of these songs within a commercial context? As I said, Chindonya um, make sound in the, on the streets to draw people's attention, um, but they never sing uh, jingles. So music is something that's familiar to trigger people's attention and get them to come along to look out their windows, to come out of their buildings, to, to come closer to the practitioners, to talk to them. So this means that most often they would choose tunes that are popular of the day, uh, tunes that would appeal to the certain demographics. This protest in April 10th, 2011, 
What were they playing then? What might be interesting to you, actually, is that they played a song that sounds very much like uh, When Johnny Comes Marching Home. And you might wonder, why are they playing this song? <laughs> but uh, it actually, that song came via Korea to uh, Japanese activists. This tune in Korea during the, the democracy movement uh, became a pro-democracy theme song. It, it's an, it was an anthem. So that's how they know this song. So they would play that. You know, it's, it wasn't always protest songs only. You know, they would sort of play some fun songs or children's cartoon theme songs um, to appeal to you know, people who, because there were some children participating in the rally as well. Um, so it was a mix of some politically meaningful songs and some pop tunes. Describe a little about the sound of traditional Chinonya ensembles and how their repertoire and instrumentation are tailored to specific spaces, specific neighborhoods. These musicians are really, really attentive to how their sounds reflect off of the urban architecture and landscape that they walk through. And if they're going through a quiet residential area, they try not to be loud. But they can't completely blend in either. So they really have this array of techniques and sensibilities uh, to sound in a way that just catches people's attention in the right way. One of the terms that you use quite a bit is the term of resonance to try to describe Chindonya and its relationship to Japanese society. Can you talk a little bit about this concept of resonance and its importance? You know, it was a, a recurring keyword in my interviews, and it was just like in English, there are actually a few different words that can sort of mean resonance uh, or to resonate, uh, but they all showed up recurrently when they wanted to talk about how it's important for their job. They need to grab people's attention. They need to appeal to unsuspecting listeners. You know, nobody really goes to to hear Chindonya. They just come your way unexpectedly, right? And they would be just walking by by you or near your neighborhood. So they really need to resonate with these people's sentiments and hearts. That's how they use it, right? So it's an it's an affective term. But it also, in order for that to happen, they need to be attentive to the, the acoustic resonance. Dealing with this idea of resonance and uh, attuning oneself to the sentiment of the society or culture, this brings up, I think, one of the key tensions that you deal with in this article. And that is that the tradition in Japan to respond to disaster, whether talking about the 2011 nuclear disaster or nuclear bombings in World War II. You mentioned that Japanese society follows a social convention of silence called jishuku. Explain the importance of silence of this jishuku as a cultural practice in Japan. Jishuku generally just means that you're sort of restraining yourself 
and it can be used more widely. Uh, it generally just means uh, self-restraint from certain activities. But in the context of my article, I'm specifically re referring to the, the, the ways in which Jishku was invoked after the disaster in 2011. Also, there was another moment um, in the recent history that happened after the emperor's death in 89. But in these two cases, Jishku really meant a long and sustained and nationalized form of silence that was performed in response to a, a certain kind of national disaster. And it is never legally enforced, but it's socially enforced and practiced by individuals and uh, businesses and, you know, private and both uh, state institutions. Because of Jishku, Chindonya sort of became politically meaningful in my reading. So, you know, Jishku, I, I, I sort of generally just define it as, as a silence performed in response to the disaster, but it really meant so many different things. But um, it also was directly targeted at uh, sounding events. Any, any performance of merriment and festivity and commercialism in public space were encouraged to be quiet. It also seems that Tindonya would fall kind of at the center of these crosshairs between both activity as a musical or noise-making activity together with one explicit tradition that's tied to commercial activity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a double whammy for them that, yeah, they are sonic commercial practice on, on the streets. Um, and that's why when I mentioned earlier that that um, Chindonya almost went out, you know, as an industry overall really suffered, had to do with the 1989 um, Jishku uh, around the, the the death of the emperor, because these these this Jishku measure lasts for a long time, for months and months and months. And the emperor was also very sick for a long time. So Chindonya really couldn't do their business. They lost their livelihood to Jishku measures. And so it, that nearly sort of obliterated <laughs> the Chindonya business back then. Even though it did decline, it, its trope, cultural trope of Chindonya really has persisted in popular culture. It is familiar, you know, and, and it was my parents' generation, actually, they all have stories about it's kind of like, you know, the Pied Pipe Piper of Hamelin like stories where as kids, they would just follow Chindonya because they were there all the time. So it's part of a certain generation's memories and nostalgia and histories and even for younger generations it's familiar so until then the, the social protests on the streets in japan had a rather intimidating reception so i think it served to sort of update and destigmatize the otherwise sectarian and violent um image that protest really was the student protest of the 60s has left in the moment of post 311 Japan, suddenly protest became something that was accessible to everybody. Um, and because this radiation, threat of radiation affected everyone from children to the elderly, the, the demo demographics of those who participated in street protest just widened like it was an unprecedented phenomenon.
what happened around Jishku is that it it wasn't just that Chindonya defied the the expectation, right? Social convention of the silence of Jishku. It wasn't just that. There was definitely some of it. But I think what happened was Jishku put Chindonya out of work. So they found themselves in the same social position as the un- unemployed and underemployed youth, mostly youth in Japan. So there had been this simmering discontent among the new generation who have been suffering from neoliberalization of the economy in Japan. And especially after the World War II, during the miraculous economic recovery, there was a lot of social security provided through the corporate system. Um, They call it Japan Inc. So a lot of um, corporate systems really provided safety nets for a lot of people. But with the new turn in the economy um, since the late 90s, really, people have been left alone, you know, to their own devices and the youth have been suffering. And Chindonya suddenly found themselves in the same boat. There was this moment of unexpected alliance building that happened after 311. So that, that allowed these two different uh, constituents to come together in the same rally. So these different parts of the society who all became suddenly uh, even more acutely aware of different kinds of precariousness in Japan came together in these protests. So for me, it wasn't just that Chindonya was a, a defined sound against the silence that was demanded by Jishku, but in the sort of a curious turn of events, suffering and unemployment through Jishku Major put them in this interesting network of political constituents. In the conclusion of your article, you refer to Chindonya as a sound business. So I'm, I'm interested to hear you maybe just talk a little bit about how, how your research here in Chindonya in relation to these political protests in Japan, what they teach us more broadly in terms of thinking about music as labor, as work, but not so much oriented towards capitalist uh, results, but towards social justice, social change. A lot of musicians, you know, have always been part of, you know, what um, has often been called affective labor. And that is inherently part of the capitalist logic, but it also sort of sits on the edge sometimes. So thinking about affective labor, I think gives us a way into thinking about how things can then turn political. Another way of thinking about Chindonya sounds political efficacy is that they can also connect local ontologies of the living and the dead, thinking about the ancestral souls, including the victims of the disaster, were being honored and being remembered at this festival through Chindonya sounds. I think that that this context was another way of thinking through Chindonya's musical labor transposed outside of the the commercial context, but in the traditional context in which the the living are reminded through the sounds and dance moves of their lives being interconnected with the souls of the dead. With that relational awareness comes a certain sense of political responsibility or responsibility to partake in political life. And that that was my optimistic reading. Their sound might still compel us to, to think about Chindonya's musical labor and social change.
Mariah Abe is an assistant professor of music at Boston University and an accordionist with the Ethiopian funk-inspired musical collective Debo Band. Her article, Sounding Against Nuclear Power in Post-311 Japan, Resonances of Silence in Chindonya, was published in the fall 2016 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants Grace Coleman and Todd Johnson, consulting editor Harry Berger, and our advisory board members Portia Maltby, Les Gay, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia Corona. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by SEM President Anne Rasmussen and First Vice President Travis Jackson and SEM Executive Director Stephen Stimfley. Thanks again to Marie Abe for talking with us about her research. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology in collaboration with KRUI and with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates. Thank you.